You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Ridgecrest Baptist Church in Springfield, Missouri. To connect with us or learn more, visit us online at ridgecrestbaptist.org. I want you, if you will, to turn in the Holy Scriptures to Acts chapter 5, and we will be looking at verses 1 through 11. So if you will stand with me as we stand upon the solid rock of God's Word, we're going to hear this story, this story about the power of God, about the wrath of God, and I believe this is a clarion call to each of us to have more of Jesus and less of me. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and, and brought only a part of it and said, and, and, and part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Let's pray. Lord, in your church, we so often avoid passages like this. And for that reason, Lord, your church so often has no concept of how holy you are and how, Lord, you do judge sin. You are a God of grace and mercy and love, and you shower that upon us. But, God, we need to realize that those who remain in sin remain in grave danger. Lord, we are here today so that our souls can be challenged, so that truth can be told, and that, Lord, people will be rescued from the death that comes with sin. God, please speak to our hearts this morning and help us to hear your message for us. And Lord, I do pray that every believer in this room, that we will all strive to have more of you, more of your presence, more of your love, more of your truth in our hearts and less of anything that is ours and sinful. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I don't know if it's because I've been reading a a book lately about the battle of the South Pacific or the Pacific Theater in World War II, but I've been thinking a lot about what it means to lead and to lead God's people. And it's an old illustration. It's it's probably about as as, uh, simple as it gets. But many times you've probably heard preachers say that the church has basically two choices. We can either determine to be a cruise ship or a battleship. 
Now, if you think about it, a cruise ship is, is a good deal. It's all-inclusive, no worries. You just show up, get on the boat, and go for a ride. I think that that's a very sad description of many people after they have received Jesus. They see the church as a cruise ship that they got onto. It's all-inclusive, and the destination is a place called heaven. But when I look closely at the scriptures, when I am careful about my exegesis, when I look at the text and see what it has to say, I get the feeling that we are not supposed to think of ourselves as being on a cruise ship, but we are on a battleship. In a time of war, a battleship is a target. A battleship is a high-prized target, and therefore the enemy is always after it. I want you to know that the enemy knows all about Ridgecrest, and he will, when he has opportunity, take his shots at us. It seems like because we have the cruise ship mentality that rarely do we ever really get desperate, desperate about our faith, desperate about our lack of growth in the Holy Spirit, desperate about our lack of evangelistic witness, and that to me tells us that we have a problem. If we are serious about shaking up the community and being, as I said last week, more annoying and pesky for the gospel's sake, we need more of Jesus and less of ourselves. This must be our desperate plea. And if we are not desperate to seek God and to seek his holiness, my guess is, is that we will find ourselves in grave danger. Because God is a God of love, but God is also a God of wrath. The church in Acts is full of power, but this power doesn't always express itself in ways that are positive to our eyes. In fact, sometimes this power, as we go through the book of Acts, we're going to see that it's downright scary. In fact, the verses I just read to you remind us just how hot the wrath of God is. Verse 11 is a key verse for us this morning. I want you to notice this, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Now, here's what I want you to think about. Most of you are going to hear this sermon and not be one bit afraid about the wrath of God. Most of you are going to walk out of here. You've got plans this weekend. You've got plans tomorrow. What I have to say to you is going to go right over your head. But I want you to realize something. Just because you're not afraid of God doesn't mean that God isn't fearful. Just because you can write off the power of God and the wrath of God in your mind this morning doesn't mean that that wrath of God won't come and roost at your house. This story really does force me to ask some hard questions about the modern church. Not just our church, but I think we need to be thinking broadly of the evangelical churches here in America and in the Western world. Is it possible that we are lacking power because we lack respect for the Lord? Is it possible that the reason why we don't seem to have much punch in our witness is because we don't believe in the power of God? Do we treat our holy God as though he is a grandfather in the sky who's only there to give good gifts to his children? Or do we respect his power? Do we fear his wrath? I hear many churches around the nation crying out for revival. In fact, I can tell you there are many churches that that's all they're crying out for is revival because when you have revival, you have more people and you have more money and then you have more influence. But I'm here to tell you here at Ridgecrest, if I'm crying for revival, it's for one reason only and that is because there are people who are lost in their sins and if they are not quickened, made alive by the Holy Spirit, they will spend eternity apart from Jesus. 
We are not motivated by that much anymore. It seems like the church today is more motivated by what kind of ministries they do, what kind of global footprint they may have. But friends, it all boils down to this. We are in a battle. We are on a battleship here, and it's life and death. And there are people who need to hear the beautiful message of Jesus. And it's our privilege to share it. The story of Ananias and Sapphira ought to give the church pause as it relates to calling out for God's power. You may not know what you're asking for. We are naive to think that God's power is only going to bring us good things. Because I want to tell you, when the power of God begins to get a hold of God's people, it is a... It is a cathartic, cleansing kind of thing. Because when God starts getting a hold of you, one thing that he's going to have to do for you is to show you where your sins are. He has to show you where the darkness is so that you can give it over to him and experience his power. You can put on a show for your neighbors, but God sees through your show. Ananias and Sapphira tried to put on a show, and God didn't buy a ticket. You cannot trick him. You cannot hide your sin. You must surrender everything to Jesus today. You must get your heart right with God. If you want to be the person God has called you to be, you have to stop thinking that God isn't noticing or paying attention. He knows. The sin of your heart is real. It is keeping you from something better. How often do we confess? Used to, it was said that the church was the confessing church. That was an old term used in the 16 and 1700s. Who would dare call the church a confessing church today? When was the last time you or I confessed our sins in the altar? How could we call ourselves a confessing church when we never confess? Or never profess? Maybe the reason why we don't profess Christ is because we're not confessing sin. Could it be? The church has been assailed by Satan from day one. I can tell you as a pastor, I, I, I see why um, very few of my, my friends that started with me in ministry maybe nearly 30 years ago are still in it. It is a, it is a, uh, a, a boxing match. It's a pugilism. It's a fight. It's a punch to the face more often than I care to admit to you. But I want you to know that it's not something new. I think that when we look here in the book of Acts, we see that Satan has been attacking the church and its leaders from day one. Even this new community who's experiencing great revival. Keep in mind, we're not talking about a church in trouble. We're not talking about a church that's not growing. We're talking about a church that's seeing 3,000, 5,000 souls added. We've seen big numbers. God is moving, and yet Satan is moving as well. Friends, I've often said, you know, when you have people, you have problems. That's true in your business. If you run a business, you know I'm telling the truth. And if you're here at a church and you're, and you're trying to shepherd the flock, I'm going to tell you that's the way it is. And the reason why people have problems is because Satan is real and his power is strong. And many of us are too naive to know it. We're going along thinking that we're in charge, that we're the captain of our ship. Let me tell you something. Many of the things you're doing, they are not of God. Yeah, you're the captain of your ship and you're heading right to disaster. It's time for us to turn to the Lord. And there are consequences if we do not. Friends, I think the reason why the church has become so inward focused, and we can blame it on COVID, and we can blame it on our uh, proclivities and sensitivities. We can blame it on anything we want. But I think one of the things that's going on is, is that we are not 
truly aware of the power of God. This morning, the word came to my mind, insular. Instead of outward focus, we're insular. And immediately, the Lord said, ain't nobody going to know what that means. So I looked it up. Uninterested in others. Their ideas. Not truly thinking of other people outside of one's own experience. I have to tell you, when I read that definition this morning, I thought that might define the church in America today better than any other definition I've ever heard. We are so concerned about getting our way and having the things we want that we are focusing all of our energy inwardly and not out. And then we wonder why the church in America is dying. It is dying. Here in the Midwest, we still have a fighting chance, but go to the coast. Go up to Chicago or some other great city in our land and tell me how well things are going. The cruise ship is crashing and sinking. We have to get back on the battleship. We must cry out for more of Jesus so that we will be less influenced by Satan. Will we heed the warning? Will we turn away from our sins? First, let me share with you the stark reality that Satan can fill your heart. We talk so often about being full of the Holy Spirit, but let me warn you, there is another power in this world that wants control of your heart. The Holy Spirit isn't the only actor in your life. There is the enemy. Before you can appreciate the story, let me give you just a little bit of background. Now, ironically, let me take you back to 1947. In 1947, a couple of shepherds uh, discovered, a shepherd boy in particular, discovered several clay jars filled with manuscripts. These were known or came to be known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. These scrolls contain most of the Old Testament. It's an amazing find, but it also has some wonderful documentation about the religious groups that were in the area of the Dead Sea, and they're in Israel in the 200 uh, BC period to about 100 AD. It covers about a 300-year period, which is really handy because guess what? That is right over the New Testament period, amen? So really an interesting time for these documents to have been written. Well, when you look at these documents, you begin to realize that Jesus, in his interactions with the Pharisees, most of us would say that his interactions with the Pharisees, that the Pharisees were very cold and they were very calculated and they had all these rules. Well, the Dead Sea Scrolls showed us that the Pharisees didn't hold a candle to this group called the Essenes. Now, I don't want to get into any great, great detail here, but let me give you one illustration of how much more strict the Essenes were than the Pharisees. The Essenes would not let a faithful member of their congregation go to the bathroom on the Sabbath. And you think I'm being hard on you this morning. A little bit tougher situation. Come on. You were ritually impure if you did that. Now, that's crazy talk. But another reason I mention this is because when we read these documents, we have direct evidence that one of the things that they required, now I want you to see something. This is different. They required it. The early church did not require it. But if you were going to be an Essene in the Qumran community, you were, if you had any property, you were supposed to give it over to the community, and it was theirs. No questions asked. 
So when we come to Acts 4, take a look at Acts 4, verse 36. We see a man by the name of Barnabas, who we'll learn much more about later. He becomes the son of encouragement, literally, that's what his name means, to Paul. He becomes a great, great figure in the early church. Here's a man, a native of Cyprus, a Levite, who had personal wealth. He sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So what we see here is, is that he got that idea from somewhere. My guess is, in Israel in that day, if a person had that kind of wealth and was going to join the church, many times they thought, well, I, I don't have a lot of cash to give, but I can sell my property and I can contribute. And so Barnabas does this. Nobody asks him to do this. This is truly a free will offering. Now, just so you know, um, in classical studies, we've learned that, for instance, the Greeks... In the hundred or so years before the time of Christ, the average person did not have any land to sell. In fact, the number is 25%. About 25% of Greeks would have had property that they owned. My guess is, is that even less than that, because the poverty here is probably as great or greater. So very few Christians would have even had this option. But Barnabas did. Now, this is a good part of the story, but the bad part of the story is, is that some people were watching. Ananias and Sapphira saw this gift and thought how that was a big deal. They knew they had some property of their own, and so they decided to make a contribution in kind. Now, once again, this is all about a free will offering. No one is telling them they have to do this. This is something that they are doing, supposedly, as Barnabas did, out of the goodness of their hearts. We are told in Acts 2.44 that the Christians held all things in common. So that seems to be the, the attitude and the environment. But it's so important. When preachers start, you know, demanding things like this, then that's when you need to get your, your suspicion up. But we're always telling you, it is good to be generous. It is good to let the Lord lead you in this. It worked great for Barnabas, but we see with Ananias and Sapphira something, something else. Now, my guess is this, as you read the language of Acts 5, 1 through 3, you see a couple here that are doing something that seems minor. In fact, just the fact that I wrote, I even said it in my notes, like I put this in parentheses, minor sin. We probably see this as a minor sin. And just the fact that we have a phrase, minor sin, tells you how sinful we are. Because there is no such thing as minor sin. Every time you sin, baby, it's in the big leagues, not in the minors. It's a big deal. And here, when we're reading this, most of us would say, what is going on here? Why is this such a big deal? This seems like a minor situation. But notice what is said by Peter. He says to Ananias in verse 3, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? This is no small thing. It's not about the money. It's about the heart. It's about someone who will lie, not just to Peter and to the church, but notice Satan is at work all the way down the line so that even they are lying to the Holy Spirit. You see, a person can be filled either with the Holy Spirit or filled with the spirit of Satan. And that ought to get our attention we have already seen in Acts chapter 2 folks filled with the Holy Spirit, but there's the ugly possibility that people can be filled with darkness, dark energy, Satan himself. Luke doesn't talk a lot about Satan. I had not realized this, but there's only two instances in the Gospel of Luke and two instances in the 
uh, book called Acts where Satan is even mentioned. That's only four times in a whole boatload of chapters. A lot of text. He's only mentioned, Satan is only mentioned four times. And so if you would still say to me, I still think this is a minor deal, realize it's only one of four times that Satan gets involved. This is not mere demonic activity. This is Satan trying to shake up the baby church, the infant church. This is a big deal. When the devil shows up, though, I want to tell you, death is usually around the corner. The phrase kept back for himself. Those of you who are businessmen and women, those of you who are accountants, you would find this interesting. That little phrase, kept back for himself, is a term from the business world of the Greeks. And it specifically refers to financial fraud. The language here is specific and technical. That what they did was they cooked the books. This is white-collar crime, is what we call it today. But any sin like this isn't white-collar, blue-collar. It's just bad. It's just black as coal because Satan is involved. And let me say this. This is a lie to the church. This is a lie against fellowship. This is a lie against Christ. This is Satan destroying the church from within. Paul warns us, and Jesus has echoed this too in Luke 16. Love of money is the root of all evil. And here we see evil flowing from what should be just a generous contribution. Remember, probably less than 20% of the people could even do this. Any gift at all of this magnitude would have been extraordinary. There was no reason to lie. Maybe you or maybe you've seen your children caught in a lie. And you think about it later. It's like, what in the world? was I thinking? Why did I even try to go down this road? Let me tell you, you went down that road because you let your guard down and the enemy is cruel. He will have you move the needle just enough so that you are protected, but your sin remains. Oh, friends, we can't talk about being filled with the Holy Spirit and not be aware of being filled up with the power of Satan. We need to guard against it because of this second point, and that is the penalty of sin. The penalty of sin. Sometimes God is gracious and long-suffering with us, but sometimes our sins bring immediate consequences. God is mystery. God is holy. I don't know when God will act any more in my life than he will act in your life. God gives Peter special insight here. I want you to notice in the text, Peter has sort of a prophetic power here. Now, some people today call this the spirit of discernment and claim to have it. Be careful. Don't assume that you have the spirit of discernment automatically. This is something that we need to be very careful with. But Peter clearly has a word from the Lord here. And the reason we know that is he knows exactly what's going on in Ananias' heart and calls him out on it. Ananias thought at most he was lying to man. Look at verse 4. You thought you were lying to a man. But you have lied to God. There at the very end of verse 4. Look at that. See, Ananias made a miscalculation. He thought that he was just putting the wool over one man or maybe 12 men's eyes in terms of the church leadership. But he wasn't lying to a man. He was lying to God. And even his wife gets involved. And at that time, 
we see that you can understand why he does this because Barnabas has done this great thing and he wants to lay this down at the apostles' feet, this gift, just as Barnabas did. But the only thing that lays at the apostles' feet at this point is the body of Ananias. As soon as he heard Peter's condemnation in verse 5 there, he dies. Young men in the church immediately rose, wrapped the body in a shroud, and buried him. Imagine if we had to have volunteers to carry out corpses. That's an interesting sign-up sheet. <laughs> After an interval of three hours, Sapphira comes back before the apostles. You know the story. I just read it to you. And the fate of her husband, she does not know. And so she has a chance to tell the truth, and she chooses to tell the lie, and she too falls at the feet of the apostles and dies, verses 9 and 10. Now, if you ever question the reliability of the scriptures, one, I would say that's just foolish, but two, let me give you some evidence. Notice in this text that when Ananias falls down at the apostles' feet, we are told that they wrap him in a shroud. Did you see that? And they carry him off to be buried. Do you notice when Sapphira dies, she's not wrapped in a shroud? Why? Well, culturally, historically, we know from the evidence that women did not get wrapped in shrouds. Only the men did. This is a specific little historical note that says, true, 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 for those who have ears to hear. This is a real story. It is accurate with the culture, with the time, and if we read our Bibles, with the God we serve. Ananias and Sapphira had agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord, and divine justice came swiftly. Let me say this. One of the reasons why the church has lost much of its power in the world is because the church rarely addresses the deadly nature of sin. We want to hear more about God's love, and I want to tell you, I can spend all day long talking about God's love, but I'm going to try to keep it to about 30 minutes telling you about his wrath, because that's probably all you can take. We want to hear more about God's love, but we need to realize this. We cannot tame God. We cannot ignore his power. People today seem to feel very little need to turn from sin because they don't understand the implications of sin. We don't understand the spiritual and physical dimensions of sin. Oh, oh brothers, oh, sisters, one sin can kill us. Ananias and Sapphira's story proves it. When will we take sin seriously, church? When will we love our neighbors enough to warn them about the wrath to come? I want you to realize that this passage, again, is a reminder that the church has to be a battleship. There is a war, a spiritual war being fought. And if our only goal is to fill pews, we will be tempted to water down our message and bring people in, but not bring them to the cross. What good is it to bring people in and they still perish in their sins? We have to call out sin. We have to preach the truth. We have to turn people to the solution. And that is Jesus. Amen. We need more of Jesus and less of us. That's our third point. This is not an easy story to read. It's not an easy story to preach. Because we are stubborn and have hard hearts. From time to time, we need a story like this to shake us awake, to shake us up. The early church was shook. Verse 11 again. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. So the fear wasn't contained within the body. But even the community understood that the power and holiness of God was at work. Does this community know that the power of the Spirit is here? Does this community know that the holiness of God 
is here? Probably not, because we've not been talking about it. But if we are true to our faith, we will respect the, the power of God, and we will live holy lives, and we will share holy truth. In about two weeks, I'll be going to the Southern Baptist Convention. Haven't been in a while. It's probably been good for my soul that I haven't been in a while. I don't know. My mama said that she used to love going to the convention because it was the only place that you could go to see men strut sitting down. About right. We have not been a humble people. We have not been a holy people. I want you to know that one of the great obstacles to sharing our faith in the community today is the fact that we are a Southern Baptist church. There are, are issues that, that go beyond this church and go convention-wide. I'm not ready to walk away from that because I believe in fighting for something good and I believe in the cooperative program and I believe in cooperation among Southern Baptists, but I want to tell you, we need to be a voice crying out for holiness. We cannot cut corners on holiness. If we want to win people to Jesus, we can't be living for the devil. We have to be consistent. We have to have Jesus filling us. And that means loving people, being nice to people, but also sharing the truth with people. The only way we do this is if we die to self. Oh, this story should remind us that the only way we can avoid sin's temptation is to have more of Jesus. Oh, brothers and sisters, Satan is playing for keeps while many of us are just playing church. Another thing came to my mind this morning is Satan is playing for keeps while many of us are playing patty cake. We haven't been serious about our faith in decades. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and fools despise wisdom and instruction. I fear that many churches in our land have been foolish, despising wisdom and instruction. And we have not feared the Lord. We have not bowed before him, respecting his holiness. Church, for many people, has been social, and it's been more like a business. I have to tell you, and I'm not trying to be bitter this morning or angry or anything else. I love you. I love you in Jesus. But I want, to, I want you to know I was trained to be a CEO, not a shepherd. Even in theological training, I was trained to be a CEO, not a shepherd. I was trained to be a businessman, not a battle-hardened leader. It is easy for me to, to fall into a lazy place because of even how I've read, what I've read, how I've been trained. But I read stories like this, and I have to ask myself, am I serious about the gospel? Am I serious about what God's called me to do? I could help you coast to heaven, friends, but I would rather, rather us go down fighting together. I would rather us be so committed to lost people that the community gets kind of tired of hearing the message, but that's okay. It's a message they need to hear. More of Jesus, less of me. More of Jesus means we evangelize more and we complain less. We stop looking for problems in the church, and we start looking for solutions out there. The church has to get on with the mission, and the mission isn't about you being more comfortable as you coast into that port of heaven. But no, we are called to share the gospel with fire, with hope, and with joy. Years ago, when I would preach like this, people would say, you look angry. <laughs> I, I promise you, there's a difference between intense and angry. When I'm angry, you'll know it. <laughs> it's 
an ugly thing. I'm excited. I'm excited about what God is doing in our church. I'm excited about the potential that surrounds us. And I want you to know we want to prepare you for what's to come. We have dreams for you uh, in terms of training you to be a better evangelist. Dreams for you uh, to encourage you to be a good neighbor. We have dreams for you so that you can push outside of the bubble that you have created because of your carelessness. We are here to help all of us to change direction. We are in this together. If we continue to lie to God, though, as we see here in the text and to ourselves, we are inviting terrible pain, disaster, and even death into our lives. You must die to sin if you want to live to Christ. And that's what I want to say to you this morning. Whatever sin is holding you back from the joy of the Lord and from the power of your witness, get in this altar. What would it look like if we had more of Jesus and less of me? I think we would pray more for forgiveness of sin. I think we would share more so that the lost would not perish. I think we would love each other and do more to heal human brokenness. I think we would be more desperate to be spirit-filled that we might resist Satan and his temptations. Friend, if you need more of Jesus, and I about bet you do, let's make a choice this morning and let's get right together. Thanks for listening. For additional resources, to learn more about us or get connected, visit RidgecrestBaptist.org.